Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome to the Prospect Podcast. My name's Tom Clark and this week I'll be talking to the human rights lawyer and Twitter addict Adam Wagner about his involvement in the simmering row about anti-Semitism on the left. First though, I'm joined here in the studio by Prospect's arts and books editor Samir Rahim and our political correspondent Alex Dean to discuss the latest developments on both fronts. Um, Alex, first of all, you've been taking... A long view, I understand. A very long view at the Tories in Europe. I spoke to Michael Hesseltine on Friday last week and he was putting the case to me quite convincingly actually and very passionately uh, that actually the Tory party has quite a good record historically on Europe. Um, he was saying, you know, it's Harold Macmillan who first applied uh, for Britain to sign up, Ted Heath who actually took us in in 72, that was confirmed with the 75 referendum. Uh, and then Margaret Thatcher, who pioneered the single market. So he was making the case that actually the Conservative Party has a proud European tradition. Uh, and I guess was explaining that to me in order to make the point that they're kind of trampling over their own legacy. Mm. Now, it's the thing that people say that, you know, Britain has a proud record in Europe. We've led the way, you know, eastward expansion and, and all that. And it's a shame that we're turning our back on it. But I hadn't quite thought enough about the Tory party itself and its own record on Europe and how that's changed. It's interesting. I mean, the whole of the European project, you could argue, is more of a sort of centre-right Christian Democrat kind of uh, invention in, in Italy, in Germany, in Adenauer and, uh, and, and, and de Gaulle in France as well, rather than a kind of social democratic Delors thing that it became and made the Tories so angry well he was definitely making that case he was saying that um kind of the, the very idea of europe uh, as it was conceived is a conservative <laughs> kind of a chimes with a conservative philosophy and he was saying that he he's really mortified not just that it's a british government that's turning its back on you know most prosperous market right on its doorstep but that it's a conservative government so it's interesting isn't it it seems that the european project has really been a more uh, been a centrist project really or it's to do with negotiations isn't it it's to do with um finding common ground so it's always been the sort of the roy jenkins and the edward heaths and the michael heseltines of this world who have been pro it and the sort of enoch powells and the tony benz who have been against it and then they're sort of modern descendants you know you could say jeremy corbyn friend of tony ben and um you know nigel farage or jacob rees mogg let's say 
But specifically on, on labour, isn't it interesting that um, suddenly there's this new passion for the EU on the left, you know, which was once regarded as, you know, the capitalist club or, you know, Labour once had a policy of withdrawing from the EU, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, uh, in Foote's, like, longest suicide note in history manifesto in 83, that actually explicitly, didn't it, Tom? It was in favour of withdrawal. Um, so it's a really interesting thing how the role of the two main parties has shifted on Europe and kind of they swap round. So the Tory party used to kind of lead the way. It was Macmillan who applied to join in 1961. It's vetoed by de Gaulle. We ended up going in under Ted Heath. It's Tory PM. Thatcher, another Tory PM, kind of spearheaded the single market, one of the greatest achievements in Europe, eliminating trade barriers and so on. Um, but now the Tory party is the force that's leading us out. Whereas when you look at the Labour Party in the 80s and so on, they were quite a Eurosceptic force. Um, and now they're in favour, you know, overwhelmingly its MPs were Remainers. So the role of the two main parties seems to have done a kind of somersault. And you've got now, haven't you, a large number of Labour MPs who don't want to block Brexit. And you've been talking, I know, to people like Lisa Nandy who worry about not going against their constituents. But in all but a tiny handful of cases, and we know the names, the Kate Hoeys and so on, they don't actually want to get out. They just think they've got to get out because their constituents tell them. Yeah, and it's a really, it's an interesting question um, why the Labour Party became pro-European. And I guess maybe if I had to kind of <laughs> hazard an answer, it's something to do with um, the way that they used to view it as just the economics <laughs> and they didn't like that you use the term capitalist club um and they didn't they didn't like the idea of that um but then there's this kind of social europe that kicked in you mentioned Delors, tom and yeah. so at some yeah, point speak to TUC. yeah at some point they pivoted from really hating the economic side of it and focusing on that to really really liking the kind of workers rights side of it and focusing on that and in the 80s they used to make a point when labor kept losing elections here they'd make a point in their um member magazines and so on of saying well you do know that uh, across Europe social democrats are in the ascendant when you had Mitterrand and everyone like just to try and make Thatcher seem less inevitable um, and so uh, it looked like a different way you could go that wasn't Maggie's way I guess from some time around then. Speaking of Thatcher um, something that Lord Heseltine said to me that was quite interesting is he identified what he sees as one specific moment uh, in the kind of path to Brexit where Britain basically got triggered to turn against Europe. And it was in the 80s, in the aftermath of uh, the formation of the single market, um, and basically obviously integrating lots of economies and there's hundreds of rules and regulations and so on. Um, it kind of it's a big procedural mess and Parliament has to kind of go through hundreds and hundreds of, of new rules and um, and you know instruments to make sure that standards uh, kind of you know there's harmony um and thatcher was confronted about this and lord heseltine said that she should have just said yes i know this is very boring yes i know this is a lot of effort but it's a necessary price to pay if you want to kind of streamline trading arrangements and get the benefits of the single market but she didn't do that instead um she said yes this is very painful and annoying and it's the europeans fault and he thinks that was the original sin ah. <laughs> and of course now we're going to have something even worse in reverse as we try and yeah. unscramble well, all is, these regulations the funny thing brexit the idea of brexit as getting rid of brussels red tape but actually a no deal brexit worse than anything would increase red tape so it's quite ironic i think it's, it's interesting do you think it's something to do with this has just occurred to me so feel free to shoot it down in flames a sort of like a post-cold war 
uh, reaffection of the left for the European Union. So you had, you know, the Soviet Union, um, you know, a sort of opposing force, a bulwark against um, America. And then when the Soviet Union um, uh, dissolved, America seemed to be triumphant and, and the in the ascendant. And who did you have as a sort of balance against an ultra sort of capitalist, um, liberal uh, worldview? And that that was a sort of the European view, a sort of mild social democracy. Um, and a way of so, and so the sort of the um, it became a sort of representative of um, a future for the left that was sort of democratic, but opposed also to um, to America. I'm sure that all the politics of the 90s, when lots of these shifts took place, you know, in a hundred years' time, people will say, well, of course, all of this was happening in the um, in the shadow of the the Berlin Wall coming down. Um, but of course, it does get you into the question of. Um, if these big geopolitical things can move around the political furniture, the centre-right in particular, as uh, um, Andrew Gamble wrote for us recently, in Europe and in Britain has been absolutely pinned at core to um, the idea of an Atlantic alliance. And whether we can trust that or not, Alex, is something maybe we should come on and discuss um, in another week. But now, Samir, I wonder if you could rescue us from Brexit, is often your role, um, I gather you've been taking reading tips from um, Billy Connolly. Yes, um, he, in a documentary a couple of weeks ago, said that one of his favourite books was John Kennedy Tool's A Confederacy of Dunces. And it's since um, shot up the bestseller list um, again, actually, because it, it, it won the Pulitzer in 1980. It's a brilliant book. I don't know if either of you have uh, uh, read it. Um, but it's one of those books that is almost perpetually out of fashion and getting... And coming back, if you see what I mean. Um, and one of the most interesting things about it is its is its backstory. So the author John Kennedy Toole um, wrote this book set in New Orleans in the early 1960s about a character quite similar to himself, a sort of raging intellectual snob who um, addicted to popular culture but also loathing it. Um, it's a very sad but a very very funny book. The author actually committed suicide before it was ever published. Um, and about 10 years after his death, his mother, who'd found the manuscript, took it to um, uh, uh, a famous writer, I think called Walker Percy, um, who got it published, then it won the Pulitzer Prize and became very successful. And I wonder what it takes, really, for a book to have that kind of um, rolling reputation. Um, I think the backstory gives the novel a sense of tragedy and depth and grandeur that maybe perhaps if it if it had been published when the author was still alive and he was making similar sort of uh, comments to his characters, it wouldn't have quite quite worked. Um, I think that a few years ago there was also um, a revival of uh, Stefan Zweig's works. He was a popular writer in the 20s and 30s. Um, and uh, he committed suicide as well, I think, in 1942 after leaving Europe. And that tragic story was a way to read back into his novels. In the same year, actually, 1942, Irene um, who wrote a book called Sweet Française about the occupation of France in early 4041. She died in 42, actually, in Auschwitz. Um, and the rediscovery of that meant that we read back into the works, quite sort of popular light works that she'd written beforehand, um, a kind of depth and darkness. Um, so it gets me thinking, I mean, how much when we read a book does the author's life story and backstory 
change our view of it. And I think with those three examples, I think definitely it does. And Oscar Wilde would definitely be another one, I guess. Um, You're the Oscar Wilde expert. <laughs> well, so. I wouldn't go as far as the expert, but, but definitely I know more about Oscar than Confederacy of Dunces. Um, he's obviously someone who had an incredibly tragic life story, um, and that's definitely played into his popularity. The interesting thing about Oscar maybe is that he has stayed quite popular, whereas I guess we're talking about something slightly different, which is people who kind of fade in and out and in and out again in cycles. Yeah, they go every 30 years, there's a new sort of wave of people in, in, interested in the Confederacy of Dunces. And there's always an attempt to make a film. Um, I don't know, they, those ever tend to get off the ground. I think it would be a disastrous, very difficult uh, book to film because it's all about tone. Because, um, you know, and if you don't frame it properly, it could just be a real caricature. But Oscar, yeah, Oscar's never really ever been out of fashion. I think he's he's always been performed on stage. And in the last 18 months or year or so, um, there have been even more films and obsessions about his life. Is it a very downbeat story? I mean, as well as you say, like about someone who's in love with pop culture but hates it. Oh, no, it's it's incredibly funny. Um, it's a sort of, it's a bit like Don Quixote. It, it sort of, it has a character at the centre of it who's a sort of almost a, a fantasist, um, but he also has that aura uh, of tragedy about him. But that aura of tragedy comes about because we know the, we know the backstory. I, I mean, think. certainly in, in in music, there's a there's a loss of this, isn't there? There's a, people who've died at 27 the 27 club with i don't know janice joplin jimmy hendrix and so on and people and of course amy winehouse i mean who can listen to back to black or any of those other albums without thinking about the life story of the artist and what, what actually happened to her or billy holiday even as well yeah. so the lesson is just uh don't write very much and die early um and then um then people will love you but you won't be there to enjoy it i think we better change the subject and so on to the main event and we're going to be talking tribal politics twitter and how we might just perhaps still strive for a more civilized conversation So, Adam, you're here as a lawyer who's um, got himself into politics through the medium of Twitter. But you start this long piece for us that you've done by something that is about before you were a lawyer, before you were any kind of name in Labour circles and before Twitter even existed, 9-11. Why have you taken us back to there? Well, I, I think that probably is in the looking back the moment that led me to the law um, because I was never interested in being a lawyer and I certainly while, when I chose subjects at university I, I didn't even think about law because it just seemed really boring um, and nine, I chose 9-11 because often when I think back to what human rights are about for me and why I've devoted my career to practicing in that area I, I think really back to, to humans and, and what we're about and why we need these checks and balances um, on our basic natures. And I think back to 9-11 just from a personal level because I had a very strong feeling after seeing what was happening on the news on that day. And I remember it very vividly of something almost sort of physically shifting in myself, which led me to think in a different way you know i found myself I, I think for the first time in my life feeling to an extent physically threatened and i noticed especially looking back that that was having an effect on how i was seeing 
the world and how I was how I wanted things to resolve. So I remember watching George Bush and maybe later Tony Blair and thinking, well, yeah, I mean, maybe we do need to go and blow something up um, like they've blown something up um, for, for us. And, and and it was almost like there were two voices in my head, as sometimes happens. And one voice was saying, you know, it was cheerleading. And the other voice was saying, hang on, what's this about? Why, why am I thinking like this when I wasn't thinking like that before? And, and I think w- with human rights generally, you've got to start with yourself and look at your own life and look at how you think about things and then wonder, well, if, if, I, if I'm so malleable, um, and if just some event that didn't even happen to me can change the way I see the world, then how fragile are, are these sort of liberal values that we in the good times find very easy to espouse? Yeah, I, I mean, what I find interesting about it, um, particularly interesting about that story, as I remember, as we all do, you know, what we were doing on 9-11, I was in an office. I saw it happen. And within an hour or two, obviously, your first thought is, oh, God, I feel sorry for those people. I was thinking... And I said to my boss, who thought I was mad, my God, what are the Americans going to unleash now? And whether that reveals something about the kind of anti-American tribe I was raised in that maybe is different from 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 your starting point. I didn't feel any affinity with the us of America. I was thinking, my God, the rest of the world is going to be set on by a very angry American. Now, when I look back, I kind of think, God, that seems a bit cold and inhuman and miserable. But I also think, well... If you look at the death toll in Iraq and Afghanistan, maybe it's a kind of rational thing, but it certainly tells us something about what tribes, I guess, each of us were in that we might not have noticed before it happened. Yeah, and I think we have a sort of, we build an intellectual architecture in our heads without even maybe even realising it based on values and random experiences and who we're influenced by. And it's only when big things happen that the all the pieces slot into place and you start seeing oh well that that was because of that and this will happen because of that and 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 I think that's a big you know I've spoken about Jonathan Haidt in my in my article Mm. and about the influence that the righteous mind his book had on on my thinking and I think that the, the way that he expresses it is in terms of motivated reasoning is that what we think of as reason is really a sort of big hodgepodge of prejudices and half-finished thoughts. The inner press secretary you talk about. Ex- exactly, or the inner, the inner lawyer that he, he talks about as well. That a, a lot of what we think of as reasoning is really, you know, if you look at what, how, how you responded to that, you, in a way, your, your, your mind was waiting for the for the American, the, the America is going to go wild yeah. interpretation. And, yeah. and, and then you fit it into that sort of exactly. approach. And, and funnily, and I, and I remember Seamus Milne wrote an article quite controversially, I think just a couple of days after, saying exactly exactly that. Or, or saying, well, you know, that America's sort of reaping what it, what it sowed. And everybody, the, these huge events are so complex that you can fit them into various different narrative streams. And maybe none of them is, is, is right or none of them is completely wrong. And I think in a, in a way that that um, that makes sense because you don't because you only have this sort of imperfect view of the world that you've built slightly randomly because of your experiences. And unless you it, you can just let that flow and your prejudices will win out or you can challenge and challenge and challenge, which is much harder. And I think that is I mean, that's what enlightenment thinking is all about is about accepting that no one person has a monopoly over what's right and what's true and what's what's real 
and really it's in our kind of institutions and our collective wisdom where you find the answers um but it's all very well saying that in when people are sort of calm and rational but when people are emotional and scared it's almost impossible to get that get that through so then we come and this will seem a bit of a swerve dear listener to twitter um uh which um at one point you thought um you started out being very optimistic that this might be a thing for transcending tribes because you were doing a lot of fact checking and yet the architecture the kind of likes and the kind of the, the way it's turned out isn't quite like that is it well it sort of is and it sort of isn't i, I think twitter is, is just fascinating because it's almost like for the first time we've we've got we, we're seeing the um we're seeing the back end of our enormous collective human consciousness sort of ri written down it's it's right there to see you know billions of people are on social media and we can watch what they're all saying and, and thinking and, and how they're responding and, and at first I was you know when I was a very junior lawyer and I was tweeting about human rights I was trying to do so purely to build my own understanding and to help other people understand this really difficult and emerging area of of law and and it was really useful really interesting and there was like in a lot of different areas there was a group of kind of legal bloggers as we, as we called ourselves people like david allen green and carl gardner lucy reed who are all you know really sort of quite prominent um still on, on twitter and dealing with their different issues and we we came together as a group of slightly sort of misfit um lawyers who just were genuinely interested in building understanding of, of our areas but but also had a kind of knack for this new medium um which was quite confessional it was quite it was very collaborative it was it was very there was a lot of hot takes and and if you think about law th this was the exact opposite of what had come before because you really only had legal journals which is the opposite of a hot take mm. like all academic type journals it takes months to get an article Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bombas socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weightloss. That's plushcare.com slash weightloss. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. It's cool in has to be reviewed and by the time it's written you know the case has probably been overruled anyway so it's kind of hopeless or you had legal journalism which wasn't 
really fit for purpose anymore because the newspapers were sacking all their um, legal uh, legal journalists and edit- editors because they weren't economical. So we sort of fit into that gap and it was a really positive, interesting environment. And yet, here we are, however many summers later, um, in 2018, and you lost your summer to this particularly poisonous row about um, anti-Semitism within the Labour Party, when it must have felt to you like Twitter had drifted an awfully long way from those early days, or did it? Well, well, well maybe Twitter did, or maybe I did. Um, and maybe it was partly because I felt for the first time, really, that there was an issue which was quite personal to me because I'm Jewish um, and I'm on the left, or what used to be con- considered on the left, um, and a Labour, I've always voted Labour, it, it was a very personal issue for me. It's something which I decided and made a quite conscious decision to get involved with and really start and really try and, and, and intervene in because I felt like I had something to add, and particularly because I've got a sort of lot of professional experience in dealing with equalities law and human rights law and also um, public inquiries and institutions that have gone wrong. So I felt like I had something to add, but I wanted to do it in a way which was, which was going to add more light than heat we should just remind people shouldn't we that the 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 row at the beginning i think was about this definition wasn't it maybe you should i i I think it it goes back a bit earlier than that and and really it was from the spring of last year when the when there was the enough is enough protests when for the first time in in any jewish british jewish memory um, since maybe going back to the 30s, the Jews were out on, on on the streets, in fact, around the corner from where we are now in Westminster, and the mainstream Jewish community was protesting the, the, the opposition, the, 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 the official opposition, which is a huge... Uh, it, it's, you've got to really understand the Jewish community to understand how, how huge that is, because the Jewish community generally keeps its head down and doesn't... Um, there really aren't a bunch of Tories or a bunch of Labourites, whatever. They're, they're, the Jewish community is generally always kept a low profile because they that, because that's just the way that, that they're sort of a very cautious community in in this country in this country mm-hmm. yes yeah, certainly not not in the united states but in here you know it's always been a pretty heads down kind of approach because i think from when from the history of the british jewish community particularly most a lot of jews came in the sort of late 1800s they were hugely disliked and and discouraged and that the, so there's a kind of developed this institute this uh, communal culture of of just getting on and hoping that people don't sort of um notice that that they're there um and this was completely different and i felt like from where i was standing there wasn't really enough thinking about from the left perspective of how to address and engage with the labor party and that's what i felt i could add um this all sort of went it, it, during the summer it, it heated up and eventually became this was sort of was funneled into this debate over the um over this definition of anti, this international definition of anti-semitism but that was only uh, that was quite enough totemic but it really wasn't the basis the basis was how is the party dealing with its very many and difficult situations and incidents of anti-semitism was it dealing with it appropriately and the sort of lackluster response you see that was the initial yeah I, I think I think that if you were to sum it up it's been a very um, untransparent and um, at times evasive and lackluster as you say response which is very tricky to deal with I mean what, what do you do about that um, but it involved going back to Twitter it involved a 
extremely intense debate which brought into it a very sort of political um this, a, a, some very political themes it was a very politicized debate and i mean party political and very partisan and very tribal and i and, I, and, I, and i'm not i'm not one to say that the the corbyn movement is a cult or you know sort of some sort of primitive tribe i think that's really dangerous and damaging way to speak about any political movement i don't think that's what they are at all i think there's it's a very diverse interesting enthusiastic set of you know hundreds of thousands of people who are very, who are inspired by yeah, but any political movement's got a tribal aspect and definitely that one does it it, it has and i think that some of the some of the issues around anti-semitism come out of a very a very partisan um approach to to politics and it's it, they're, they're almost they're almost incompatible you cannot deal with a sort of sensitive issue of racism um with very very complex and difficult issues surrounding it in a partisan way because you end up saying oh, well it's all smears and it's all just concocted by the tory media or, or whatever which isn't going to have if there's no problem then it's that's you know and that's true then fine but i i don't believe and never have believed that that's anywhere close to the truth i don't and i don't think anyone anyone in the labor party certainly not the ones i've met or in momentum um or around the party believe that either i think that they understand it's a serious problem it's just about how do you address it and how do you from my perspective on on twitter how do you build an, a build a culture of proper responsible engagement with that issue and i mean i think on the on the substance of the issue i think your your point was um these are rules that are tribunal that the Labour Party can hope to be can apply sensitively and if it does these rules are rules it should feel comfortable in following and then you had to have this big back and forth with people who couldn't sign up to any formulation that challenged their right to say that Israel was a racist endeavour was the phrase of last summer wasn't it but um just before we come back to the tribal thing, just just summarise where you think the the sort of intellectual argument on that got to. Well, I think that the um, International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance definition of antisemitism, working definition, um, I think it was a bit of a shame that it became so totemic because it's not a brilliant definition, um, and it's and it's really, I mean, it's a working definition. It it does it does traverse into very political issues around Israel Palestine. And it involves quite a complex understanding of modern anti-Semitism. I don't think it's necessarily wrong. What, where the wheels came off with this debate was that um, the Labour Party concocted its own definition, which was completely different to that definition and did so without any consultation with the Jewish community. And that, and therefore, it lost all the credit that it... Oh, so it was the non-consultation maybe more important even than the words. It, I'm, and, and I said at the time, I thought it was a decent stab to be honest that their version of it the problem is that if you are the alleged perpetrators you're not really in any position to be um unilaterally deciding what the a new definition would be and replacing a definition which has been accepted by lots of people worldwide now whether at, if at the beginning my, my view on this has always been that if the if at the outset there had been a genuine will to but by Jeremy Corbyn and by the people around him to first of all understand this issue second of all engage in some real self-reflection and you only have to look at um, Naz Shah and the way that she went about things after yeah. she post, po um, posted some anti-semitic Facebook posts and how she went and spoke to the community how she 
wholesomely apologise how she really got to grips with, with the issue. And now she's an ally of the Jewish community. That It's doable. But if it had been done at the very outset and then said, right, how are we going to deal with this? Well, first of all, you're going to have to engage with what you've done in the past, what you've said in the past. Okay, well, I'm going to be open about that and et cetera. If, if that had been how things had happened, then maybe we would have got to a point where the definition could have been edited in some way or added to to emphasize free speech. And, and as a, from a human rights perspective, that would have been very important. And I'm very, I'd be very happy to engage with that. But the problem was it was all done backwards and it became, it, and, and all the trust went, all the trust is already, really already gone. That sounds very fraught. It still sounds to me like something where I find it hard to believe Twitter's going to make things better. Um, we know that um, certainly on both the Labour left and the Labour right, there are people who I've seen making what I call very bad faith points, you know, because from the point of view of the Labour left, there's a kind of interest in just rubbishing all this and saying it's all a slur and all made up. On the point of view of the Labour right, um, there is you know, calling Jeremy Corbyn an anti-Semite is a bit like calling someone a paedophile, isn't it? It's a kind of way of, because you think, oh, Hitler, terrible. Like, um, and um, you saw allies of Jeremy Corbyn who I think maybe were trying to do something about it being treated in a totally dismissive way by um, people on the other side of the of the party. And then we also, even more contentious, you get into this thing that Daniel Levy wrote for us about a while ago, whether there's some individual journalists and actors within the, the Jewish community who are, you know, identified either with the Conservative Party or the right of the Labour Party that are kind of sheltering behind um, the voice of the community as a whole. I mean, it looked to me as someone who's sort of not in any of these groups, like um, there was an awful lot of people saying things for disingenuous reasons to which you were a rare exception <laughs> well I, I think that's right and, and I, I think I took a view that the and, and I write about this in the article is the the only way as someone as an actor who was actually in, who was who was affected by this issue not just someone objective from the outside I would have to be very very careful and cautious about my own prejudices because I was bound to have them and the and the only real way to do that is to is to be openly self-critical and to and to admit you're wrong and to sort of almost act out i don't mean that like an actor i mean uh, perform um in a way which you do on social media show you're working and and try and really not just think about what 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 am i how am i being influenced here but also explain to people how you're being influenced and if you get something wrong say you got it wrong and if you think you might be um, biased in some way, then then express that, or at least give the give the background to how you might be biased, and let people make up their own mind. And I think it's a work in progress. I think that's that's the really interesting thing about Twitter. That's where I'm. That's why I'm still there, right. and and bothering because I think that there's something about this instantaneous, short, um, interactive medium which allows you to interrogate your own arguments in a way which you cannot elsewhere it's it's almost like having a structured public conversation with with you know hundreds or thousands of people sounds quite masochistic 
it, it is it is a bit masochistic, but it's but it's fascinating because you're actually seeing what people think. And and fair enough, you are. So, so the people you mentioned, the, the the bad faith people, and I'm a bit cautious about the, the term bad faith. I think it's very very. Um, it's used in lots of different ways. Mm. Um, and I think it kind of assumes there's a little bit of conspiracism about the, the mm. idea of bad faith because it very quickly leads into, well, aren't you part of some WhatsApp group that's giving you messages? Whereas actually people are just acting usually on their own on their own prejudices, which, and, and I don't necessarily mean that in the negative, it's just the way people could be, are. Could be, could be tribal, but non-coordinated, right? Yeah, I mean, I, I, think it off, I think it almost always is on Twitter. You know, you just get the same reactions from people because they see the people they trust taking a particular approach and therefore and they kind of parrot it and they do and i do it as well and, and you just sort of find yourself doing it yeah. and you think well that well that because you you get the argument you you get this you, you just pick up and, and i'm used to dealing because I, I, in my professional life i'm dealing with arguments all the time that's what i do for a living i'm constantly arguing and, and making points to, to counter other points and you know and building cases around particular sort of factual logical structures and you just see that's what people do. It doesn't mean they're coordinated, but it sometimes does mean they're not thinking. And in fact, it often means they're not thinking and they're arguing, but not thinking. And you can argue and think at the same time. Yeah. And, and that's the that's the sort of magic point. And that's the kind of that's when you're having a conversation is when you're actually thinking. And one of you, you, you have rules for for, uh, for for Twitter, one of which is really listen. I mean, we had Raphael Bear wrote a big piece for us um, some months ago, which I know you, you read, in which he talks about this architecture of the likes and the retweets. And I've seen people have a very different view from Raphael, like Owen Jones say, you know, sometimes you watch the the retweets pile up and you start to think, oh, I must be right. I mean, that's it says a lot, really. Because I think, but I think he was then being in that particular instance. I think he was being self-critical. He was going, and then you think maybe I'm not. But, but there's a danger for all. And what I'm wondering is if you're making these quite measured points and trying not to just go with one team, like, does it hurt if you've had all these people who are sort of cheerleading you one day and saying, "Oh, here's a guy who's got the right idea about how to get through this," and then the next day you're a traitor or whatever? Um, it, it's very, very personally hurtful. I mean, I find I'm, I'm, you know, I'm actually pretty thick thick skinned and that's how I can engage in these things um but there, w there were certain points um in the in the summer especially when I just sort of you know just started to lose the plot because the problem is that the more the better you do in your arguments the more you're going to get pushback and the pushback can start to really be quite hostile and aggressive and also it gets very personal yeah. you know so, yeah, so, so people start you know I had, I had this instance where I, I was where I sent a tweet which was about um, Windrush because people kept saying to me, well, what about, you know, in, in response to anti-Semitism, what about Tory, Tories and Windrush? Which, you know, which is, it's, it's a kind of, it's, it's extremely important scandal, the Windrush scandal, and I've spoken about it a yeah. lot. Um, and, the, but it's not an answer it's a kind of it's a non sequitur really yeah. and, and it's a kind of and, and i understand where people are coming from and, I, and i've and i've reflected on that a lot because i said well that's a um windrush is just you know it's just another excuse and i didn't mean the whole windrush scandal is some excuse i just meant in this, in list, this of, yeah. list of things i'm listing that people are saying to me that's not an answer it's to what i'm saying the conversation. Um, and and it was and it was picked up by the canary um and by sort of others in the canary orbit who saying well you know wagner's a racist you know, here we, we've 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 exposed him. He's he's a racist. He's 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 just sort of excusing the Tories. Um, and I got a bit, you know, I, I sort of simultaneously worried and upset. 
and, and a bit angry as well and starts sort of responding. And you should never respond to these things directly and at the time because you can get yourself into a lot of trouble. And I, and I think, and I got this, just got d dug in and tried to explain myself. And you just can't, it, it, the problem is that once people say, well, we've exposed you, and, I, I, and then sort of people are still stitching together tweets from over the, over the years that I tweeted that sort of exposed me as being a racist. There's not a lot you can do, and I've sent, I think, 70,000 tweets. So if you stitch them together in a certain way, a bit like the people who find the, the codes in the Bible, if you sort of, you know, read diagonal lines, um, it, 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 it is, it's possible to stitch together. And, and, and especially if you add in this huge dollop of confirmation bias where people really want this person who's an inconvenience because they're kind of difficult to categorize and well, they, don't, they don't seem to be a, an actual Tory. And then coming from a human rights background actually knows what they're talking about is actually talking about this properly, I, I think. And, and, and I say that with, you know, with a pinch of salt, but I think that is where I was, where I was seeing and it was very helpful to to expose me as a racist because then I could be discounted, and and yeah. that's and that and that's the, but that's a very Twitter thing, you know. It's a very, it's a, it's 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 a very Twitter thing, and it's a very human thing to, to sort of, to find what people really hope is the case. Is that okay. This person doesn't doesn't need to be listened to because God knows we can't deal with the arguments. We're going to catch him out. So in just some just bizarre we're, way. We're just going to we're going to we're going to show him up or her up you know to yeah. be and that's just really I, I think that is really human i find myself doing it as well i, I like sometimes i find with owen jones like sometimes i just want i just find myself thinking i just you know uh, I, I think he's being disingenuous and, and and he's obviously just not you know not he's obviously just being he's a bad faith actor and i'm sort of in my own mind i find myself shutting him off because he, i think he's a very powerful intelligent debater and and it can be very frustrating to get around the arguments but I think a lot of the time it's because I don't agree with what he's saying as opposed to and I find myself wanting to and I think a lot of people were the same with Owen Jones you, you I, I want to expose him in some way I just sort of thought to myself well th this probably is wrong so I'm, I'm gonna I'm gonna resist this impulse because I think from what all I know about about Owen um I think it's probably wrong so I'm just gonna stay out of, of that mode of thinking and I think you've got to really stop yourself and i think yeah. it comes uh, with a lot of this stuff and everything i've written you can you can boil it down basically to personal responsibility and so here's how we get to we should have a, need to wrap up in a second but the, the personal responsibility you're banking on to overcome the power of the tribe when amplified through twitter it's quite an ask isn't it so, so we are in a new world that's the you've got to remember that this stuff didn't exist 10 years ago and therefore and we are in a completely new mode of human interaction worldwide mass human interaction it's completely different to what came before it we've not had no precedent in human history in million years of evolution and we've got to figure out a way of dealing with it and it's not the algorithms not going to save us and a new button that says respect instead of like is not going to save us the, the the only thing that's going to save us is by learning as a, as a species the 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 norms the correct norms for dealing with this and and we've got to understand why people are suddenly feel feel liberated to be abusive and insulting and aggressive in a way they would never in person in a newspaper or at work that, that, that something has got to has got to change and i think we've got to the, the only realistic way that's going to happen is building our sort of collective understanding of human nature think as you say before sending that tweet thanks very much indeed adam wagner 
And that's all for this week. Thank you very much for listening to me, Tom Clark, guest Adam Wagner, and also Alex Dean and Samir Rahim, who you heard from here in the podcast studio at the heart of Westminster. Stephanie Boland was this week's producer. If you enjoyed the podcast, please do leave us a rating and a review, which really does help. But we'll see you next time. Goodbye. Goodbye.